Yo, 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 welcome back. Welcome to another episode of Selena's Underground Podcast. Your look at Selena's culture, news, PhD, historian, taught at Stanford, you know, all of that stuff. We're back this week. This is a, a kind of a unique episode because I don't know if we've ever done a remote interview like this. We've definitely done things outside of the studio, but I don't think we've ever done a phone interview. So this is pretty exciting. And um, yeah, today on the phone, we have Ignacio Nacho Ornelas, dude, PhD from, well, got your PhD at Stanford. And we've, we've had you on the show. I don't know if it was more Roberto, really, that we interviewed, but you, you might have snuck in a couple words in there. And, um, but yeah, but, but it, it's, it's been a while. And I want to reintroduce you to some people that may, you know, have come onto the show recently. And yeah, so anyway, welcome, Nacho. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, man. Let me let me just clarify a couple of things. Uh oh. Damn. I, don't, I don't want the academic police coming after me. <laughs> but, I said no, doctor. My PhD is actually Well no, no, you you can go ahead and say that, but no, my PhD is actually from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, oh, I, I thought you got it at Stanford. Stanford oh, okay. Yeah. No, no. But for good reason I actually got it uh at, at the UC. Uh, but that's a different story. But anyway, I just I just want to clarify that because you know, someone out there will be like, wait a minute. <laughs> they did not get it from a private institution. How dare he? No, <laughs> you know, just trying to, trying to, I don't know. Like there's always some academic person out there that will have nothing else better to do and, and will want to uh, correct the fact what, you know, I mean, for good reason. But, Dude, yeah, but when... anyway, go ahead. Uh, you wanted me to, to touch on, on, on something and I, and I missed the question. I apologize. Uh, no, I don't think, uh, did I did I propose a question? I'm already I'm like I'm already lost. Oh, already. I think you said just welcome. So anyway, yeah, we're just welcoming you. Yeah, yeah. Because again, I met you years ago now because you were doing a project with ah, what's his name? That's right, Chavez. Daniel. Or, or, yeah, uh, Ruanova. Ruanova, correct. Yeah. Yeah, and well, again, Chavez. What's what was his first name? The guy that wrote Border Lives. You know, I actually thought I met you through, through was it like the Steinbeck Center? We gave a talk at the Steinbeck Center, and then I think you guys came to it, right? Yeah. Uh, we did the Brasero Legacy Project. Yeah, uh, you were showcasing something. So that, that's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I went there, and can yeah, you guys had found, well, with uh, Daniel Ruanova is an artist from Tijuana. Right. And you, you had found some, like, some negatives, some film negatives or something of, like, the Bracero movement that you were showcasing? Yes, photography. Photography from the, from, from the archives from a, the Stanford Department of Special Collections where I work, and they were part of the Ernesto Galarza collection. And uh, for people that don't know who Ernesto Galarza is, he's actually the Cesar Chavez before Cesar Chavez. And so he was a union organizer. In fact, uh, had a connection to Salinas because of uh, the agricultural labor movement. You know, he had been organizing farm workers really from the, like the 1940s into the 50s and 60s. But one of his big claims to fame is that he actually was one of the investigators who was hired as, as a kind of independent investigator by a Congress member to investigate the, the accident of the 32 Braceros who died at Chulat. Oh, okay. And Ernesto Alarza, who's a, who was a Stanford alum and an academic also, he had conducted a lot of research on the Brazil program and left uh, just a tremendous collection of documents, really documenting the Brazil experience. 
their work schedules, their daily lives, their correspondence. And he left a number, hundreds of photographs of, you know, uh, individuals that took photographs of these braceros, um, really on their journey, starting in Mexico, like where they were coming from, the communities, the villages that they were coming from in Mexico, and through the whole process, through the whole bracero contracting experience, um, all the way to the United States, where, um, you know, initially they're welcomed with a lot of uh, welcoming um, fervor, you know, from World War II. But he also begins to document a lot of the uh, the different uh, labor abuses that they dealt with and lived with, um, including some of the places that they lived in. Um, and so anyway, the Bracero Legacy Project came out of a lot of my research in the archives at Stanford. And, uh, and so what we decided to do when I was working with some of his photography was, you know, I had a discussion with, with other academics and, and, you know, academics tend to be very private, very introverted individuals for good reason, but I'm totally the opposite. You know, I'm a social animal in, in a way. And for me, what I wanted to do was really get those photographs out of the library, out of, out of this basement and really share them, you know, share them with the world as, as much as we could put them on social media um, give public history talks, and that's really how we how we met. Damn, like, dude, I'm not going to question a historian for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, you You're should like... always question. You should always question a historian, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's where I'm. Like, I was talking right before we hit record that I'm we're kind of working on a history podcast, and because again, now that I'm my own person and I could go out and buy books and stuff. And, and a lot of these books are, are kind of like theses that really, you know, aren't, aren't not, not that popular, but then you really start yeah, to see like, yeah. Holy crap, there's a whole nother history that wasn't taught to yeah. me. And partially it was like, oh, yeah. come on, you can only teach so much in, in, in school time. Uh, partially it was deliberate, you know, because of, yeah, of certain yeah. powers and, and yeah, so, so it's, so yeah, so always question it. Always question. Always question everything. I mean, when I became a journalist, I came across that phrase like, "If your mom tells you she loves you, you know, check the source." It's like <laughs> always question everything. Yeah, no, but the but the legacy project, I mean, was really um, you know, it's a it's a public history project, but it's something that came out of uh, you know my research, my passion, my love, and then also my collaboration with Daniel. Daniel is an artist, as you said, based in, in Tijuana, and you know. Scholars, academics, researchers, you know, we think a certain way, but artists, you know, they have a totally different mindset and, and analytical framework for how they look at primary sources, letters, you know, written material, but also photography and Daniel's eye and his aesthetic for how to like really help and, and me and, and, and showcase the, the photography was, was an incredible contribution to say the least. I mean, he is just a, in my opinion, you know, modern day artistic genius, if you will. And uh, we, we started that collaborative project now about six years ago. And, you know, we do a lot of public history. Sometimes he presents the work, um, you know, down as far as Mexico. Um, he has multiple projects going on. But over the last few years, I've been doing a lot of different presentations, either at museums, uh, colleges, uh, even at community colleges. And uh, I think even like a middle school I did one time up at, up at UC Berkeley uh, when I was there as a visiting scholar. I had a, a middle school that came out to learn about it uh, from Tahoe out of all places. But the, the goal really was to, to teach about the, about the history and to really 
um, you know, expose these photographs to the world and to, to shed light on Mexican labor specifically because people often forget all of the contributions that Mexicanos have made uh, to making California the fifth largest economy in the world, but specifically places like the, the Salinas Valley and Monterey County in particular, where it's a multi-billion dollar agricultural industry. And people often forget, you know, that, that Mexican labor had a lot to do with that. And so for me, it was really uh, a, a project about my research, but also how passionate I was to, as, as you said, you know, we don't grow up with this history. We don't grow up with these stories. I mean, we had teachers tell us like, you know, for good reason, the last thing you ever want to do is, is be out in the fields and, and, and do farm work. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, we understood it as well intended in the sense that obviously yes, farm workers, you know, uh, can, can be, um, you know, severely injured, backbreaking work, toxic pesticides, all of the above. But at the same time, you know, if you grew up in a farm worker family, you understand that you know what, you could, you could make a living in the industry and not necessarily be scooped over, right? Like you could, you could work as, as a foreman, as a manager, as a supervisor in the field department. There's a number of other areas that you could make a living at, um, in the industry. But my point is that we're not really taught this history, as you said, for good reason. And, um, and, and no one tells us that our parents and abuelitos and abuelitas made one of, uh, you know, the Salinas Valley, one of the richest areas in, in the world. Yeah, no, and that's what I really loved about your project is that it, it did, you know, there are two pictures that really stood out to me that I, I think about constantly. And one was, it was a, a group, because it was mostly the men that seemed to come over. So it was a, it was a train load of men coming from Mexico over to the U.S. to work. And the guy was leaning out the window, kissing his girlfriend. And it, I feel like it's a photograph that we've seen several times, you know, associated with World War One or the end of World War Two, you know, with the the sailor kissing the girl in, in Manhattan or whatever. And again, there was that's what I enjoyed. It. There was no sadness to it. It wasn't a, a guy like a family being ripped apart. It It, it was a man excited for this adventure that he was about to go on. And I, I think a lot of the times we, we tend to only see Braceros as victims and we fail to see that they were very proud people oh, because, and then the second picture that, that I always think about, it was, it was a picture and what I assumed was a lineup. It was three or four Mexican guys in their suits, but they all had numbers on them. And I think I asked you, but I asked somebody, either you or Daniel, and I was like, well, what did these guys do? What are they accused of? And and you're like, no, they're 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 getting a job. Like the numbers are just to, to keep track of them, you know, that they're all working. You know, like and and yeah, and that's why they were in their suits. They were very proud that that they were, you know, doing this work. I mean, granted, like you were saying, the 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 reality of it, especially in the future, you know, as the program went on, wasn't always nice, but Again, it wasn't people that were snatched out of their their homes and thrown onto trains and buses and and forced to work. A lot of the time, it was a very proud people that were excited for the adventure that was ahead of them. And I don't know if I ever thought about that before before seeing those pictures and before coming across the Bracero Legacy Project. So that that's where I it was really interesting to me and and it was really eye opening. 
and and also like that yeah. like, like don't you don't have to play the victim the whole time you know like we we come from historically you know very very intelligent people that that are, are very accomplished um again i i still get blown away that like a lot of americans dreams is to go see the the pyramids in egypt and it's like we we have bigger pyramids in mexico built by with again no modern technology or anything yeah. Yeah. but because they're in mexico there's like they're somehow lesser than it's like are you kidding that's we should be I don't know. Like again, when when you build a fancy building yeah. or something, you put a Roman column up. You know, you don't put any kind of Mayan <laughs> motif, and it's like what? what? Um, but anyway, so that pro that's what one thing that I really enjoyed about that project. It it, it kind of showed me as like, look, dude, yeah, it, it's not all great. It wasn't all you know cherries and roses or whatever. But you shouldn't only feel shame and and victimhood because that is our history and. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that, I mean, you, you nailed it. You're absolutely right. And that, that was part of it because for many years, decades, um, you know, farm workers were always, um, showcased, portrayed and photography and video as victims. Um, and you know, for good reason, um, the farm worker movement really exposed a lot of the abuses that do happen in the industry, you know, everything that you mentioned and, and even worse. But at the same time, we do come from, from family members and deals and aunts and our moms, you know, who were campesinas and, and grandfathers who were very, actually very proud of the labor they did and their work and their contributions. And, you know, many of them came from agricultural communities and, and rural communities. And so when they came to the United States, they, they weren't ashamed to work in the, in the field as some of our, our teachers, unfortunately, kind of viewed the work or others viewed the work, right? They actually took pride. They enjoyed working in the industry, you know, working with the machinery, the tools. Of course, it was backbreaking work. No one's going to deny that. And it was hard on the bodies and, and bodies are broken, et cetera. No one's denying that. But at the same time, um, there, there there is a, a sense of dignity in, in the industry and in the field. And, and the history of Mexican labor um, and, uh, and a lot of pride. And, and that was part of the narrative that I was trying to showcase. I wasn't, and I, and I still do, by the way, it was, it was taking me back really uh, to when I was a kid growing up and hearing all these stories of shame. And for me, you know, I grew up in a household where there was no shame. It was like, yeah, you, you, you got dirty, um, but you could clean up and you could wash up. And, you know, my grandfather, uh, you know, took pride in, in sharpening his, his lettuce knife every evening. And he would show me how to do it. You know, he went para que prendas. And, um, and there, there was a, a dignity to that and a pride. And that was something that was never talked about or discussed. Or, you know, in school, we never really learned, um, again, the contributions that they're making to the industry. But also how, how farm workers you know, create the social network, how they help each other. You know, our family uh, apartment at the time was really a, a landing pad, if you will, for a lot of other migrants and immigrants who came from our, our community. And it was like this, this migrant corridor that was created to help other families, you know, for many years to establish themselves in Salina. And so, but, you know, all that starts really with the Bracero program in 1942. And then, and then it continues after that also 
but again, you know, I think he said it really well. It was really about showing the dignity in, in the work workforce and the workers. Yeah, I mean, to this day, well, actually, I don't know about to this day, but because uh, I used to cover the, the local soccer scene here, and there's there's actually two teams. That's how big it is. There's two teams uh, that call Los Freseros de Irapuato. And because, and if you look it up, Irapuato is a traditionally strawberry growing region in Mexico. I mean, that, it's not a yeah, native. Yeah. I don't think strawberries are not from here. But But anyway, that's what they did. So a lot of the times, you know, it's like, we see them as oh these these poor farm workers and yes they're getting paid <laughs> yeah. terrible wages but it's like they're making a lot more money than they did you know in their with their little farm in Mexico getting screwed over by the fucking big American corporation anyway you know that's paying them pennies yeah. for their yeah. fucking corn or some shit um, so they <laughs> they could come here and they're like dude I I don't have to worry about my crop failing you know I don't I just I show up at the time I have to. I do my work. I'm going to do this work anyway. I enjoy it. I enjoy being out in the field with the plants. So, but I actually get more money. But now in the United States, you're all of a sudden at the bottom of the social scale where in, in Mexico you were your own kind of thing. And, and yeah, that's where I think a lot of the times if you were to, you know, farm workers are like, again, it's not as, as bad sometimes. Uh, the us sons and daughters who had it really nice of them. Like, I think we feel more bad for them than they do for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's all about context and, uh, but I, I think for many years, academic, you know, in the, in the universities and, 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 you know, when I refer, refer to them, I refer to the Academy and, and there was a lot of times it was like this top down research where, um, it was, it was all negative. Right. And, and nothing, positive or none of the stories of like how one generation came out of poverty and then the next generation these farm workers are actually sending their kids to some of the best universities in the, in the world and these are stories that came out of the Salinas Valley you know that came out of like Bracero parents um, or grandparents or farm worker parents you know who you know one 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 generation their parents are, are coming here they're picking strawberries as you said or lettuce and and then the children are attending some of the best universities and, and, and then all they come back and they go back to Salinas and they run for city council. And now they're, you know, some of them are mayors, some of them are assembly members, some of them are actually in the Congress. Right. And you're like, wait, wait a minute. I, I never heard any of these stories, right? Like you don't really hear that kind of trajectory of farm workers being able to come out of poverty. You think of them as still always living in poverty. You don't think about them buying homes and having mortgages and, you know, paying off car loans and putting their kids to college and, you know, buying second homes or starting a small business. And all of those stories, um, you know, are, are, have come out of places like the Salinas Valley, Ventura County, other places in California. And, you know, we, we don't hear enough about them. I think that we should hear, um, and showcase those stories. I mean, think about, you know, some of the braceros and some of the agricultural pioneers that have built Napa. You know, we think of Napa as like this very white space, right? Um, you know, connected to Europe and, and, and the great growing region there. But man, you know, who are those workers, right? That are toiling and, and producing the, the, the grapes that are some of the best wine in the, in the world. And now the Salinas Valley is turning into one of the best, uh, wine producing regions in the world. You know, the best Pinot probably right now in the world. I, I, and you, I mean, that's all, you know, Mexican and Latino labor. 
Yeah, there there was that the big again what what put California wine on the map was like that 1970 wine competition where basically California wines shut out French wines in in the in that competition. They won them all. And right, right. and again, I I enjoy history. I mean, I'm not gonna not as much as you, obviously. But so I immediately went into like, what well, what what happened? What went down? And yeah, and it was the again the, the big thing was out there. It was these cowboy type, you know, guys that California people that had money but didn't know how to grow grapes. So that's why the French didn't take them seriously. But they hired Mexicans to get their vineyards up to par. And it was exactly. mostly Mexican labor that 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 did it up, and sure, there you know the the white guy's the guy that flew over to to Paris with the wine. But I was blown yeah. away as at how they were so dependent on the knowledge of of the again, and I don't want to only Mexican, but it's mostly Mexican at this point. Uh, field workers, and in Napa, yeah. in Napa. Yeah. Well, and that's the connection that you make, right? Like these are not just field workers, farm workers that come to the U.S. like, you know, with a blank slate. These are campesinos that come from places like you said, Irapuato and Michoacán and Jalisco, who grew up as farm workers and who grew, who learned how to grow, um, you know, different products, different vegetables, different fruits um, from their parents and their grandparents. And so that knowledge capital, right? Um, gets transferred over to places like Napa and the Salinas Valley and other these, these important growing regions, but no one has ever really documented right that that contribution of Mexican labor uh, bringing all this knowledge to create these multi-billion-dollar industries. Uh, when you think of growers today in the Salinas Valley, you think of a lot of the European. American uh, immigrants, you know, the Portuguese, the Italians, Swiss Italians, right? Yeah. But for the most part, you know, they're three, four generations out from really doing a lot of the difficult, hard work, labor, right? Um, a lot of the growers out there today, if you were to take a tour of any field in San Jose Valley, there's a, a Mexican foreman, Mexican supervisor uh, that is actually doing a lot of the management work, right? And a lot of that knowledge is getting transferred over to, to another farm worker, but it's being passed on from one generation to another. And, and again, it's contributing to this multi-billion dollar industry, um, that we call, you know, the solid bowl of the world, (laughs) the agricultural really capital of, of, I think the United States, I would argue. And, And yet, but we don't think of it as Mexican labor, right? We don't think of it as, as Mexican ingenuity innovation right if you think of all of the innovation that has come out of of the Salinas valley still there a couple years ago one of these websites was like oh this is a list of the least educated cities in america and the big hoopla was that we were we were second to last Uh, that other town in texas in your face other town that i already forgot about but um and that's what uh, upset me is that everybody took it as opportunity to to punch on Salinas, which is bugged me because like we live yeah. here, so we're kind of punching each other. But also, I'm like, you can't qua- quantify. I don't know if that's the term. I'm all of a sudden talking to a PhD. I want to yeah. sound smart, but you can't like that knowledge of okay, like here the the to cut celery 
they they'll buy a lettuce knife and then snip off the top and rotate it 90 degrees and re-weld it back together they don't make that like in a factory like celery knives are made by hand to to be more efficient and you can't there's no degree for that you know there's no way to prove like that that is that is that is genuine intelligence that 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 is right uh, again uh you're his, his, you are a PhD in history. I wonder, you know, would you have the engineering tech, you know, no. know how to do something like that? Not, not at all. But somebody does it <laughs> with, with, without a high school diploma. And, and because of that, they are considered uneducated. And that's like, that's, yeah. that's such a wrong term. And also, uh, again, to me, I'm, I'm like, every day I'm like, I question capitalism more and more. <laughs> Because also uh, farm workers, it's called unskilled labor. Unskilled labor. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, grow a garden in your own house and see how easy it is to get 10 out of 10 yeah. lettuce heads to grow correctly. Like, there is a tremendous amount of skill involved out there. But you can't say that it's highly skilled labor because all of a sudden you got to pay them more. You know? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. No, definitely. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, or, or again, I just kind of touched a little bit on the defunding the police and, and here in Salinas, the police are so, they, they absorb so much of, of the budget. And a big part of it is like, well, our job is fucking dangerous. Our job is dangerous. And, and again, I'm not hoping on, you know, <laughs> wishing injury on anybody, but historically since 1874, when the Salinas Police Department was founded, zero officers have been killed in the line of duty. And every year you hear several stories of a farm worker dying, of, of getting fucking got caught up in a tractor, falling in a bleach yeah. vat, or there's yeah. an ammonia leak and 40 people end up in the hospital. Every, yeah. And that's every year, yeah. every growing season, every, every, you know, every, yeah. in the Salinas Valley we we lose you know at least two two or three farm workers a year and and nobody no, that's, a, that's a very good point i mean that's a very good point and historically um you know i actually documented some of the uh the accidents in agriculture accidents and, and and it was always like you know two three hundred a year in california throughout or more at, at, at certain points but like there in the salinas valley right there's been some like major accidents um in soledad um you know, where, where people or farm workers were entrapped in like this transportation vehicle and, and, uh, you know, it caught on fire. And I think like eight of them died out and saw that. I forget if it was eight or 11. But, um, of course, the Bracero accident, the Chular accident, 32 of them died. But no, as you said, multiple accidents. Look what happened just this past year, right? As, uh, you know, this was a, a story of migrants being transported. Uh, but also, you know, just the kind of transportation issues of, of uh, in in the agriculture industry historically. But it it has historically been actually a very dangerous industry. Not only can you get injured, but you know you could get I mean, good limb maimed, right? Like you're working on this heavy equipment, and if uh, you're a lot of s- different accidents, exposure to all these pesticides, right? Yeah, and 105 degrees in the Salinas Valley isn't nice to be standing around in. Like that's dangerous too. No, and that's that's a common temperature on the Central Valley, right? Where yeah. where we had the farm workers actually that died. Um, I, I think it was last week. Um, one farm worker, you know, who died of, of heat stroke. But this is, I mean, this is a common occurrence every year, as you said. Um, and agriculture work is is dangerous, you know, and it has a significant impact on on farm workers' health over over the course of their lifetime, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, dude, yeah. I mean, going being on the east side and and you you see those older people and you see they're they're but they're I hurting. Think back to your back to your point too is that you know and I I remember someone bringing that I think they texted me uh, the article or they made a comment and and um, it was it was someone's friend who was a teacher there in Salinas and so you know I kind of kind of worked up when 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 I heard it coming from an educator and I said, look, the way you have to understand it is that the majority of of the students, the population, and and this is something that I never hear, you know, educators talking enough about, but you're, you're talking about a community that is is first generation in a, in a lot of different areas, but uh, you know, high school is like one area. Like some of us that, that went to high school were, you know, we hear a lot about like kids who go to college and the first generation of their families to go to college and graduate. I mean, we have a large population of Salinas who are actually the first in their families to attend high school <laughs> and yeah. graduate from high school. And so, you know, you can't compare and contrast that, you know, with, with a community out in Carmel who's, you know, three or four generations of professionals, um, you know, here, here in this country. And, and, and so you can't quantify that, right? Like you can't put a number on, on the progress that the, that the community in Salinas has actually made and continues to make and the innovation that's coming out of the, uh, you know, just the, the social capital, the knowledge capital, the ingenuity, uh, the kind of innovation that comes out of the Salinas Valley and different, different industries and different sectors. And so, you know, instead of looking at our communities and our cultures as so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, we, we should really look at the assets that they bring. You know, we always look at English language learners, right, as having some kind of deficit. Well, why not look and consider that, like, what they actually bring, right? Their assets, they're actually bilingual, right? Like, quit looking at that as some kind of deficit. Look at it as an advantage, right, that they are going to have eventually. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I think the, the storyline often is like, um, look how far behind people are. Well, actually you should really consider how far people have actually come and, and, and how well they're doing in, 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 in many respects, you know, as first generation, um, in, in different areas, but specifically with regards to education. I mean, you know, I, I come from a family of six, uh, five sisters and, you know, my mom, she got to like, I think eighth grade, you know, and so by the time I got to high school, man, it was, it was my, I was first generation, not college, high school. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and that's a a big deal if you think about it, right. Because it's not, you know, people often think of like Latinos or, or Mexican Americans, Mexican Americans as not having an interest in education. And that's, that's actually so far from, from, the reality, you know, is and the fact is that our parents um, are actually very, very supportive in many ways. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of barriers, you know, to, to different forms of education and access and, and you know, it's, it's, it's very expensive. Not everyone can afford it. Right. Um, there's a lot of pressure in some cases to help with family income and supplement it. But for the most part, you know, when you're first generation, it's really about, you know, almost surviving, trying to get through. Uh, but that, you know, once, once you get that first generation graduated, you know, that second generation, um, has a lot more support, 
Um, and, and you see that with, with the kids graduating. You know, there's that story in the Salinas Valley that everyone talks about. I think uh, the young man, you know, from Salinas High, Jose. Yeah. His first name Jose? Jose, um, you know, there was a documentary based on his uh, upbringing. Yeah, and he ended up at Berkeley. Out at Sher- yeah, and, um, you know, he's a first-generation student. And you just think about that for a minute. You know, his, his, I want to say his mom works in, in Pittsfield. But you know, mom was an immigrant who did not graduate from high school, from what I remember, and now is going to, you know, her kid, her son is going to be the first, I think he's the first in his family to graduate from high school. Now he's going to UC Berkeley on what I remember was like a full ride. I mean, <laughs> that is a lot of progress, right? Yeah. Yeah, heck yeah. And, um, well, before we go too far into this, because we kind of, as we're telling the story, we kind of bounce around on it. Um, I'm a little cu- curious about your personal history, because you, you are, like we've mentioned, you, you, and you went to Stanford and, and, oh, wait, did you ever go to Stanford? I keep throwing that in there, or, I mean, yeah, I know no, you guys, no, no, I just want to be, I want to be clear, I, uh, I, I only worked, worked there. there, but okay. I was never, I was never there as a student. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you see Santa Cruz. So you, you went to you, that for sure. Right. Um, so how, how I want to know a little bit about your bio, you know, did, did, were you in Salinas? Were you born and raised here? Yeah. No, I wasn't born there. Actually. I, uh, I was actually born in, uh, uh, uh tequila country. So I always talk about tequila country, but I was born in Acotonilco, Alto, Jalisco, oh. um, which a lot of people are like, ah, I don't know where that is, right? But all, all you got to say is, is, is tequila. And they're like, well, tequila, tequila? And I'm like, not the town of tequila, but um, then you start to mention like Cazadores and Tequila Patron and Don Julio. And that's really the region, right? When we're talking about agriculture and you wonder why there are, there's so many success stories in the agriculture industry and the Valley is, you know, a lot of these companies went to these very rich agricultural regions in Mexico to get their talent, to get their farm workers, right? And in some cases, their foreman and their supervisors. These are individuals that were growing the mezcal, right, to harvest and produce the tequila. But that's actually where I was born um, and got to the Salinas Valley because of my grandfather and my mom, uh, but got there at a very young Salinas High. Um, so I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. Um, my mom still lives in Salinas. Very proud of being from Salinas. Any chance I get to really highlight, you know, uh, being from Salinas. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, for me, man, I've always been very proud of where, where I come from and my roots and being Mexican and, and being from Mexico. I was never ashamed of being an immigrant never ashamed of speaking Spanish. You know, I grew up with kids that were ashamed, that were embarrassed. And as I got older, I understood why. Um, but you're talking to someone, man, that, that has always been very proud of being Salinas. I mean, it used to drive me nuts, like in high school, when, um, you know, I, did you go, did you, what high school, are you from Salinas? I yeah. I forget if you're from Salinas or not. Yeah, yeah, I'm born what, and raised here. I went to Alvarez, because I'm young. Alvarez, okay, so, so Alvarez, so, like, at Salinas High, we, um, I think you guys took Disneyland trips too, right? Like you, you yeah. go to Disneyland your senior year, right? And yeah. so we would go to like 
I don't know, I took multiple trips my senior year and, and, and we'd be in Disneyland or somewhere. And uh, this actually happened to me recently again. But, um, you know, you meet kids in L.A. At, uh, in Disneyland from different parts of, of the state or, or from L.A. And then you're, you're in line waiting for, you know, a roller coaster ride and you start talking. And, you know, there'd be like, I don't know, 80 of us from, from Salinas High. And, you know, we run into kids from Orange County. And they're like, hey, so, you know, where are you guys from? And, and some kid in our, in our little group would always say, um, oh, we're from Monterey. And, and, you know, he, I mean, he was kind of speaking for the group, right? But it would drive me nuts. I'm like, wait a minute. Why did you just say you're from Monterey? And I, and I would ask them after that. And, and their, their, their remark was always like, well, um, no one knows where Salinas is. And so, you know, they, they would say Monterey. But, but to me, I always took that as being ashamed of being from Salinas. And as I've gotten older, I'll always remind people, like, I'll tell them, like, I'm from Salinas, and they're like, oh, where's that? And I'm like, do you really not know where Salinas is? And then and then I'll, 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 like, poke a little bit more, and, and, and they're like, no, I don't. But you, have you ever heard of John Steinbeck? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of John Steinbeck. So do you know where, where he's from? Oh. Or, like, have you ever had lettuce or, or strawberries? Right? And, and so it, it's like this kind of, I don't know, they play stupid or ignorant. And, but going back to some of the kids that I grew up with that, that I felt were ashamed, um, there was like always like this kind of like social class, uh, insecurity or stigma. Um, I was at a, I was at an event in Berkeley a couple of years ago and I ran into the same crap. I, I, it was, uh, it was actually like a football, um, promotional event. I was on the field, right? And I, and I, I was there kind of hanging out and meeting some of the, the players and the coach. And I run into a staffer, a young girl, probably in her like early twenties, uh, Berkeley grad. And we start talking about, um, the team and, and all of that. And then somehow we get into like, Oh, where are you from? And so she says, you know, I'm, I'm from Monterey. And I was like, Oh, that's funny. You're from Monterey. And, and so then I asked her, uh, Oh, what, what high school do you, did you go to? Because I, I'm actually from, from Salinas. I went to Salinas High, and so then she backtracks and she says, "Oh, I actually, I actually went to Notre Dame." And I'm like, "Shit!" But you just said you're from Monterey. Why didn't you say you're from Monterey? And it was the same kind of like insecurity that I run into, you know, with with people who she's clearly from Salinas. She, you know, she went to Notre Dame. Good for her. Um, but this this shame that comes out of like. And, and I, I mean, I know why now I've studied it, right? It's, 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 it has a lot to do with, with, again, these insecurities, the stigma, working class culture, immigrant community, right? And, and I mean, there's, there's another side too, also where I've, I've, I've run into like hipster kids and, you know, wealthier kids that try to like, um, you know, and even Mexican Americans for the most part that, that try to like pawn off, you know, kind of like, showcasing their street cred somehow and they weren't really from the streets you know they were pretty privileged kids sheltered right <laughs> they're like oh yeah i grew up in the east side and i'm like no you didn't you know but but i think going back to my point about taking pride in being Salinas and, and running into people that are ashamed it, it, it really did um and still to this day I've, I've never understood why we have so much to be proud of you know i i thought you know that the other day I was thinking, if I ever give a graduation speech and something, one day I'm going to make the kids shout how proud they are 
or they should be a being from Salinas and, and share the story. Don't ever tell someone that you're from in Monterey because you're not. I mean, you're from Monterey County, sure, but don't ever be ashamed or, or, or scared or afraid to say that you're from one of the the most productive agricultural regions in the world where some of the hardest working people live. We have so much history, so much to be proud of. But to, to answer that long question or, or my long answer, uh, yeah, I grew up. <laughs> well, and you grew up here and was college always where you had those parents that are like, dude, you got to go to college. We busted our ass or, or you know, just <laughs> it's funny you say that or you ask that because I'm actually very critical because like, you know, I, as far as I can remember, man, this is it's like as soon as I was like seven, eight years old, like. My grandfather, who, who was a farm worker, he, he had like a, a side gig um, selling eggs sort of door in Salinas. And we still have like two uncles that still do it. You'll find them on the east side. They go like, they go to one of these uh, places and, and, and uh, I, I think like in Moss Landing. Um, and, you know, basically before Amazon, dude, yeah. <laughs> was back in the eighties. It was like, we would go door to door. Amazon Primo, eggs. not prime. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but my, my point is that my parents always had me working. I had an uncle who had a, uh, a, a flea market gig on the weekends also. And he sold these pirated, uh, cassette tapes. Uh, he sold like a lot of like Spanish music, cassette tapes, Los Caetos de Linares, Los Bukis, Los Temerarios, Los Yonis, but he also sold a lot of hip-hop, and it was like one of these beautiful places, man, that I, I mean, memories I have of, of the Selena Speed Market before they got rid of it. I think it's now like Dr. Keen Elementary School now. Or yeah, something it is. The Martin Luther King ever. Academy. It's Academy. Yeah, that school. used to be the flea market, man. Yeah. That was like the hot spot growing up in Salinas, but my point is that like, my mom, man, was always like, boom, part-time, you know, get a part-time job. So I grew up, like, I worked at Home Depot, man. I worked at, like, I worked at the mall. I worked at gyms. I mean, I I was always working growing up, um, even through high school. And so I think, you know, like, my stepdad, I think he, he had aspirations of me going to, like, Cal Poly. Like, that was a big thing because he's an ag, right? And a lot of his, his bosses, you know, had gone to Cal Poly and, and so by the time I got to high school, I, I knew, but I didn't really have a pathway. You know, it wasn't until I started meeting friends that like knew the, knew the road, knew the pathway, like this is what you have to do. But to say that, like my family was like super supportive, you know, honestly, it wasn't. And I, I don't blame them. I'm not trying to say like, oh, look, they were bad parents or anything. Like that. Yeah. It, it was about survival. It was about working. It was about supplementing family income. I mean, we were very... We, we went through ups and downs, you know, where the family was struggling. At certain points, we were doing better. And then at certain points, we were, we were like in crisis mode. And so, I mean, ultimately, there, there was, you know, a lot of tension and stress uh, about like, you know, well, well, you're the oldest. Should you just help supplement family income or, or should you even consider going to college? But it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like your stereotypical, you know, kind of story where like, oh, there's all this support you have to when you're going to go and all. No, that, that, that was not the case. And, and I bring that up and I share that story because I think it is a big issue right now in our community, um, especially with Latino males. If you go to a college graduation, uh, like 
you know, anywhere, Hartnell, CSUMB, uh, UC Santa Cruz, San Jose State, if you're finding that a lot of the young Latina women are graduating from college. Yep. And, and I, I want to say, like, I, I don't want to misquote the number, but I mean, there is a crisis issue right now with Latino males actually attending and graduating from college. And there's a number of issues around that, um, sociological, but one of them is that there is a lot of pressure uh, from family to supplement family income. And so as, as, as young Latino males get old enough to, you know, to, to, to help um, in any way, you know, whether it's a car payment or part of the mortgage or part of the PG&E, and so you're finding a lot of young Latino males like leaving college or not going um, to help, you know, support families. And, and it's also a lot of young Latinos too, don't get me wrong, but somehow they're, they're managing to do both, to do the work and graduate from, from college. So we are seeing a crisis with, with uh, what I call a crisis because we're not seeing enough of uh, Latino That was kind of my story was that, you know, there was some support indirectly but not like the kind that you hear about like certain parents, you know, that, that, that really are like, you know, checking up on your grades, yeah. and, you know, making sure you're going to take that PSAT and then the SAT and then that you're going to go straight to a UC or, you know, like that pathway. It, it was not like that at all. And when you did go to college, were you already like history's my thing or did, were you just like, Oh, try it out and see what I find. <laughs> You know, I mean, to, to be quite honest, it was, I mean, for me, it wasn't until I got to college where, where I really found uh, a space where I could really, like, believe in me and myself academically. And I found mentors. By, by the way, I, I went straight to, to Hartnell, first of all, the community college. And, and I had a, a very, very powerful mentor there by the name of Juan Olivares, Dr. Juan Olivares, you know, who, who, who was just, like, I want to say, I think I have like a fifth grade teacher. I don't know if you remember, but like in elementary school, you, you had some elementary schools where you had like your, your, your homeroom and maybe you would go and see another teacher for like a particular subject. And I think I want to say that in elementary school, I had a, uh, a subject area Latino Mexican American teacher for like part of the year. So he, he was actually my first Latino Mexican American teacher I ever had back in like fifth, fifth grade. But honestly, after that, man, I didn't have a Mexican-American teacher until I got to Hartnell. And Dr. Juan Oliveras was, was one of my instructors in history there. And and he had a major influence on me, really believing in myself as an intellectual, as a, as a philosopher, as a thinker, not just as like someone that is, is out here to just go out into the workforce and into a job. And so I started thinking very differently. I started analyzing society and critically thinking about you know, our place in our society, learning our, our, you know, all of this history that you're talking about, I started learning about it and really feeling empowered. Um, and it really just changed how I started to think about my future. I didn't really have a, a, a trajectory, but I had friends and, and, and girlfriends that were going to college and, and it was like, okay, this is, this is the path. Don't, don't get out of this path, you know, do whatever you can. Um, to stay in it and then once someone posted a picture of us actually <laughs> on Instagram from like 20 something years ago I think like 20 years ago when we were at this like spring break trip in Rosa Rito <laughs> I was like you know eventually you, you find the support group you know of, of fellow students and peers 
And that's kind of what happened to me is that like, you know, you went to class and you went to lunch together. And then like you started talking about like, I want to go to UCLA or I want to go to San Diego State. I want to go to San Jose State. And, and you kind of just figured it out. But, you know, I found a lot of support from friends, to be honest. Uh, a lot of friends of mine who are still actually, some of them are still in Salinas. A uh, good friend of mine, Mario Maravilla, you know, he, he ended up, uh, he's, I think he's a counselor. I, I don't know his official title, but you know, he's involved in counseling. And, uh, you know, Jacob Rosales, who are really good friends, other other friends who, you know, some, some girlfriends who are also very focused, who I learned a lot from, you know, and it was like, you know, you got to take your academics seriously. And and then that, that's kind of how it sparked the, the knowledge, you know, the, and, and then, and then it, I mean, I, I was, I always grew up really curious about history and society and, and learning and, and biographies and, and, but I, I didn't really always have the space and the time, um, and an environment. But as you get older, you finally have the agency, right? Do what it is that you want to do, like mm-hmm. you as a journalist, right? And so then once I have the power to kind of like decide what to do with my life, I, I started to, to head in that direction but it wasn't so much later you know it wasn't it wasn't something that that was sparked like in middle school where i was like this straight a student you know like some kids you know for good reason or yeah and that's why i definitely wanted to ask that because i think people just hearing it would automatically assume oh he came from a family that was like look dude you're the first generation yeah. <laughs> you better stick your no, nose yeah. in them books you know because that's yeah. just what you assume actually i i'm seeing um i have your biography still here in front of me and it says that you also teach ethnic studies at Willow Glen in San Jose. And I mean, I don't know if you saw recently, I think the Salinas Union High School District was going <laughs> to, uh, what, what do they call it? Critical race theory? Or what, is, is that just a term that people use? Or is, or is that actually a thing that they're confusing with as ethnic studies? Because I had never heard yeah, of critical I mean, race theory since like three months ago. Yeah, so... I mean, critical race theory is really a framework for analyzing race in American society, but specifically through a legal lens. It's something that legal scholars study, right, to to analyze and study race in American society. Specifically, I mean, if you really want to get into it, they study really institutional racism and, and white supremacy, white privilege, right, but through a, through a legal lens, right, like how it's embedded in our institutions. And so it is a theoretical framework that legal scholars use. However, they are conflating with, with the study of yeah. ethnic studies. Right? Now, in some ethnic studies courses, the term might come up, right? Because in ethnic studies, you're, you're learning the history of all these different ethnic groups that have had to navigate and, you know, racism, prejudice, discrimination, and you do study terms. Right. You do, you do study white privilege. You do study white supremacy. Like, what does it mean when people say we live in a white society or what is institutional racism? But they're conflating critical race theory with the learning of ethnic studies, which is, which is totally different. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating because, you know, ethnic studies is a, is a very powerful subject area to really empower students. I mean, you talked about how like, you know, you're learning all this history, right? As, as if you've gone older, but in ethnic studies courses, you, you learn about the contributions of all the different ethnic groups that are cited in ethnic studies courses, but you also learn about the messiness, right? The, the kind of the tough history that sometimes is left out 
of your regular U.S. history courses. And so, you know, the media, and especially conservative outlets, are really trying to conflate, you know, the CRT, critical race theory, with, like, the, the teaching of ethnic studies. It's, it's something totally different. Teaching an introductory ethnic studies course at a high school level is very different also than a university or a law school. And that's something also that, that unfortunately has gone conflated. I mean, you know, the idea of teaching introduction to ethnic studies courses is to really teach about Asian American history, to teach about African American history, Chicano, Latino history, indigenous history, you know, a lot of these different histories that get left out of these mainstream US and AP history courses. And it is a methodology to really retain students and empower them. Because think of all the kids that go to school who only hear about history through a year old centric lens, right? And so the, the idea is really to teach Chicanos, African Americans, all these different ethnic groups, also Asian Americans, their history. You know, that they, in some cases, may be recent immigrants, but that Asian Americans also have a very long history here in the United States. And they, they are embedded in, in, in American history, you know, dating back to the 19th century, if not before that, right? And with certain Asian American ethnic groups. And, you know, we've seen how much of the violence that has been directed at the Asian American community recently. And, and, you know, in ethnic studies, we actually learned that, you know, this is not new. Right? You can go back again to the 19th century and study the gold rush and see the different forms that. Um, I mean, there was literally Chinese, a law example, called the Chinese Exclusion Act. <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and so when people wonder, right, like, you know, the advantages that certain groups have had, right, especially European-Americans and why other people ha- have struggled, right, you know, the, there's a lot of history to be learned. But also, like, you brought up Mexican-American history, right? Um, you wonder why a lot of Mexican-Americans, for example, feel a lot of alienation or feel a lot of different forms of internal oppression, right? And, violence that's directed at them also, right? We, we talk about, you know, the 22 people that were killed in El Paso just a few years ago by that yeah. racist kid, you know, who was out, quote, looking for, for Mexicans to kill. You know, we need to unpack those stories and understand, you know, the history of violence that's been directed at Mexican-Americans living here in the United States. But but to answer your question, yes, they're, they're conflating a very theoretical legal framework to understanding racism in American society with an ethnic studies course very differently. I saw what happened at the Salinas Union High School District. It really is a tragedy because I think that the Salinas Union High School District was actually one of the first uh, districts that uh, approved ethnic studies courses. They've been teaching them actually longer than many than any other school district in California. Um, you'll have to fact check me on that. But they've had ethnic studies courses for, for quite a few years now. And all of a sudden, you know, parents who are watching Fox News and hearing, you know, that, you know, how bad critical race theory is and, and complaining it with ethnic studies courses and you know, they show up really just sounding very, very ignorant about the whole, you know, the whole course. And, you know, what I also do really when I teach ethnic studies is also remind students, you know, when we get past, you know, the four major ethnic groups that we're supposed to learn about in the course that, you know, I teach a lot of the European American students to also look within, you know, to look about, to study their own ethnic history also, whether it's Italian Americans, Irish Americans, you know to learn about their own ethnic history, which is also very important and very empowering. Yeah, that's where sometimes, I'm not not saying that I'm 
there's racists constantly yelling at me or anything, but sometimes when white Americans like that's their culture is white. And I was like, no, like you must come from somewhere, you know, like if you're I'm proud of my German heritage and I cook German food and this is traditional German clothes. I, I want to learn about that. But when you're just like, nope, history started in 1612 or whatever, you know, and that's where. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, it, it, and, and for me and Salinas, it is a tragedy because it is uh, to see that because, you know, Salinas is a really an ethnic mosaic of the world. You know, when you see it in its neighborhoods and its, its history, and, and there's been a number of different scholars now that have studied this history, but I think Lori Flores is, is I have to, to reference her book. She did a really fantastic job in her book. Uh, she, she actually is a PhD Stanford grad, and she wrote a book, Fields of Dreaming. I forget the name of her book, but, but in her book, she did conduct a lot of research on Salinas, and, you know, you study the Filipino history, you study the Mexican history, the Chinese history, the, the Japanese-American history, some of the African-American history there in Salinas, you know, with the migrants who came from uh, the South to California work in the Central Valley, but ended up in the Salinas Valley agricultural fields. Also, and then of course the European ethnic history, you know, Portuguese and Italians, all these different ethnic groups, right? It is a mo- an ethnic mosaic of the world. And so, wouldn't it be really fascinating for young people in Salinas to really learn that history, right? As opposed to just like the John Steinbeck uh, kind of literary history, right? That's yeah. very, still very Euro-American centric. And, and what, what you begin to, to learn is that, you know, then that the Filipino American kids start to take pride in their, in their heritage and to learn about their ancestors who led a labor movement in the Salinas Valley, you know, and the Japanese American, um, agricultural pioneers like the Panimura family who built a multi-billion dollar agricultural company that has also employed a number of different ethnic groups. And, you know, they, they collaborated with, the uh, you know, in, in Oklahoma, or excuse me, a, a Texas migrant Salmaker family and the Antle family, and they built Panimura and Antle, you know, the Antle Corporation. Yeah. And so, you know, think about all the intermarriage that's happened in Salina, you know, and all the different families that you see, you know, you see Filipinos marrying Mexicanas and Japanese marrying Mexicanos and, you know, all these different ethnic groups. And, and I think there, there's a beautiful history there that parents should, not be afraid of, but really take pride in, you know, and I think in doing so, some of those parents that actually were, went to the school board to complain, they, they would actually learn a lot about their own history and themselves, you know, because the term white is like, is super broad, right? And it doesn't really tell you much about your own history. Like, as you said, right, you also have an ethnic history, whether it's Irish, German, Italian, all these different uh, white ethnic groups. So, for me, that was kind of sad to see, but I was also very proud to see some of the school board members that stood up. And in particular, I noticed that Phil, Philip Savera, you know, who's, who's a Chicano studies instructor at San Jose State, he stood up to that, you know, and, and I, Superintendent Burns, I think, also. So I think that, that the district is really lucky to have both persons that understand and, and value ethnic studies curriculum. Yeah, and, and uh, real quick, the, the Lori Flores book is called Grounds for Dreaming, right? Is that the one I believe you're yeah, talking I, about? Yeah, I should, I should know that, by the way. But if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, she was one of the, her and Galarza and a couple other people, you know, have really documented, you know, these different ethnic groups. And But, but that should be like a mandatory read at every single high school in Salina. You know, it should just be part of the curriculum. It's a, it's a beautifully written book, very scholarly but it tells you 
that's very, very important history of these ethnic groups who have made very important contributions to to making the Salinas Valley, as I've said before, one of the wealthiest regions in the world. And I know it's hard for people to imagine sometimes because, you know, if you live in Salinas, you know, you, you, you live it every day, but, you know, go outside of Salinas to different parts of the world and you realize how wealthy it is in, in its agriculture, you know. Um, and as I've said in the Brasero Legacy Project, sometimes it's difficult to take pride and value, you know, the way, like, maybe some of the European Americans have done with their migration from east to west, right? Like with building the, the New York City skyline or in Philadelphia or in Chicago, right? Like, you know, you worked on those on those buildings. You could take your grandkids to showcase, like, look, that, that was my labor. That was my work, right? Yeah. And and the grandkids take pride in that. It's, it's a little different, right? I mean, our, our parents took us and, and told us, you know, you had me lomo, right? Like I left my back out in that field, but it's, it's not as tangible. You don't see it. But I think this generation is changing it, you know, through social media. I saw it during the pandemic. It was really cool to see a lot of young people, you know, through social media showcasing and highlighting the pride that farm workers, you know, that they've taken their parents and, and you know, going out to the fields and providing them with uh, resources, you know, during the pandemic and being super thankful for their hard labor, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was very, you know, yeah, I, I loved seeing that as well. But you, you touched on something right now that I also, I just quickly want to bring up because, again, when I was doing a, a lot more history about Salinas, like I've told you, um, just because people really enjoy those those shows. And, again, it, it's interesting where I've, there's so many cool stories, but I realized that, like, in, in school, history is taught from east to west, so right, right. <laughs> so, whereas, like, yeah, it, which which is weird because by the time like European Americans landed on the East Coast, like Mexico and, and or Spain was already fully involved in Mexico. Basically, like it wasn't a blank, like a, a blank part of the West was was wasn't just nothing there. But the way history is taught is that America starts from the East and then right. spreads out West. So by the time you right. get to the West, you're, you're like a junior in high school or something. And then they're teaching you about cowboys and stuff. And, but they're, they're completely ignoring that even hundreds of years of European history that has already been there. So they try to squeeze that like, oh. oh, okay, you get, if you take AP American history, your senior year, you might get a little bit of this, but you know, you spent 12 years learning about Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia and Boston or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very Eurocentric, you know, as you said. I mean, there's no really teaching about, you know, you think about, like, the U.S.-Mexico border, right? I mean, there's people moving up and down. You know, there's indigenous populations, like, there's no border, you know? They're, they're moving, they're moving resources, they're they're migrating also, right, through the Southwest, up and down. But yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, there's already like an economy, you know, <laughs> there's an, yeah. there's established resources. By the time the U.S.-Mexico war occurs, right, there, there's a benefit for the U.S. to expand the West. They're not stupid. They, they've sent, you know, people to analyze, right, like the economy in California and, and the copper that they're after in places like Arizona and the gold, right, and the, and the silver, and all of these different uh, resources that they know exist in the Southwest and that they want and that they need. But there already is a population that's working in these different industries and in and, and an economy, right? There's a foundation that's been already established through, as you said, partially European history, also through the Spanish, right? And, you know, the establishment of the, uh, of, you know, as exploitative as they were, of these missions, right? They were up and down uh, 
California with with an economy and an agricultural uh, economy that that eventually is going to even grow even more. But a lot of that is just totally ignored, right? And I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it's like this history that is exceptionalist history, right, of, of moving from the East to the West and, you know, manifest destiny, right? And, uh, you know, again, a very Eurocentric way of looking at, at society, excluding indigenous populations and the history, like, you know, none of these indigenous groups existed. And if they did, they were going to get conquered, right? So it's a very, very ugly, very messy history that sometimes, uh, unfortunately, not sometimes, for the most part, is totally excluded from the, the narrative of, of U.S. history. Yeah, again, when when that guy Kearney went into Santa Fe, like it was already a 300-year-old town or whatever. Yeah. And, and, um, and that's manifest destiny. That That's what we're taught is that that's when America started. And, and it's like, mm. I mean, and yeah, so it's yeah, like... Don't tell that to the... Nuevo Mexicanos, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, in that, you know, Nuevo Mexicanos know that, you know, Santa Fe had existed way, you know, long before the, uh, the New England colonies, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, I'm trying to think of, of the book of like Kearney's and his whatever conquest of the West. And, um, yeah, but they, they talk about that, how he walked in and he was like, holy crap, like this is just, this is a metropolis. Like, <laughs> And he was blown away, but it's interesting to read that and and the way it's taught in school in that that it's like yeah it's, it was this empty land that they just took over and there's just a couple Indians that they had to send to Oklahoma, but other than that it was nothing. And it's like wait what no? But anyway, I can go on uh, again. I not only do I enjoy history, but I enjoy talking to somebody that I know knows more than me. And dude, it's weird. I don't know if, if I don't mean to say white people, but white people, I don't know if they get it, but like, it's much more comfortable because you're not Jornelas, dude. Like if you were just another white professor that I met, I don't know if I would be this comfortable talking to you, you know, and I don't know if I could. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you shouldn't be um, in any way intimidated by scholars and academics. You know, they're supposed to be a resource. Really, they're supposed to be out there educating the larger community i mean a lot of them are, are very busy with writing and research and publishing and so they they become very introverted and and uh, recluse in their institutions but you know for me it's always been about the community and and reaching out um in fact you know i don't know if I, we have enough time to, to mention this but yeah, fine. Yeah. for the last about four months i've actually been working to try to rename the athletic field out at uh in middle school after a former alum, a lot of people don't realize that, that this this individual gentleman grew up in Salinas and is actually very proud of being from Salinas. And for me, you know, when people ask me, like, why are you so involved in all these projects, you know, about federal legacy projects, it really is about taking it back to my elementary school years when I didn't have a lot of mentors or people to look up to. And so when I do a lot of the Brasero outreach and public history events, it's, it's about getting these stories out so that we can empower a new generation. And in the same way, you know, this, this athletic field over at uh, El Salsal, which is a very important space for young people and a lot of, you know, the Mexican-American population out there um, on the weekends, you know, the alum that I'm talking about, which I'm sure you've heard about, is uh, Joe Garcia Cap. Oh, okay, and yeah. for people that don't know who Joe Cap was, you know, he's a, he's a football player 
in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, but he was also a first-generation college student. His teacher at Alcazar had a, a really important influence on him. He always mentioned it and guided him, took him on a, on a field trip to UC Berkeley. Eventually, he went to Berkeley, the starting quarterback at UC Berkeley. He's actually the last football team uh, at UC Berkeley uh, he played where he led to the Rose Bowl. He didn't win it, but it was the last time Cal went to the Rose Bowl under yeah. his leadership. And this was a Chicano from Salinas. He, he was born in Nuevo Mexico, but his family moved to Salinas, and he was there. Went to Sherwood Elementary School uh, in South Cal, and then went to Salinas High for a year. Family had to move again. But whenever you talk to, to Joe Cap, he's always mentioned uh, how Salinas had a, a very important influence in his life. And so, what better way to honor? You know, this very important figure in Chicano history he was named the toughest Chicano by Sports Illustrated magazine back in 1970. Um, yeah, because Yeah, well, that's that's the problem. That's why a lot of people don't know about him. But here's a very successful story, right, of a yeah. Mexican American working class kid. You know, and I've been trying to um, talk to the leadership in Salinas. Uh, to really consider it, you know, and, and I've got very positive uh, responses. I mean, it's a process. You can't just like helicopter into Salinas and, and make these demands. You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta tell the history. You gotta get community support, and that's why I'm sharing this because if if, if you can think of, of people that that are open to hearing, first of all, about why it would be important to to name this field after this very accomplished Chicano from Salinas. And then, and then have a discussion. I'm not saying it, it has to happen tomorrow, but like have a discussion. You know, what, a, what kind of positive contribution, what kind of positive image that he could provide our young people. I, I, I love that you're doing that. And, and I love, yeah, because again, I had no, I'm, I'm, all, I'm here now reading up on, on Joe Cap and his numbers retired by Detroit, one of the rare numbers that are retired. But holy crap, how, how, and how can we do that? How, how do you get out there and, and, and give this information to the to the people that need to hear it. Yeah, so I've been talking to a few of the trustees. They're, they're, they're very you know, very supportive for the most part, and they're doing their job. You know, they want they want to hear more. They want to hear research. They want they so I've been sending them and sent them some books, sent them some resources so that they can learn more about it. But I do want to get more support from from teachers on the campus. I've talked to a couple of teachers. A lot of them are gone right now, so I'm waiting for for August for teachers to return, maybe give a talk, give a presentation, but also find parents and, and, you know, to let them know about it and, you know, see what they think. You know, again, this is not something that I'm trying to just like participate to the community. It's something, it's an idea, you know, that, that I've discussed with, with a few people. I've gotten a lot of support. Like I said, you know, assembly member, uh, Rivas from the area supporting it. County Supervisor Luis Alejo, some other school board members, Philip Pavera supporting it, Sandra Ocampo supporting it. I um, wonder if you would get any pushback from like the, because Joe Cap, it seems like such a non, <laughs> if you hear Joe Cap, you're like, wait, you're going to name this field after a white guy? You're like, And then if people aren't don't realize like, no, that's just his name. Because I immediately think of uh, Teddy Ted Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with Ted Williams, the baseball player. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but remember that I said Joe Garcia Cap. Oh, okay, uh, Joe Garcia. So, oh, yeah, okay. Cap, Cap, if you know if you know New Mexico, like you said, you brought up Santa Fe, right? There's a lot of intermarriage. Yeah. Um, between between Mexicanos and like German, German immigrants, Americans. And so that's, that's his ancestry, but, but he is a Chicano. And, it, you know, if you've ever met him and if you talk to his son, who's really, you know, just a, a dynamic individual too, his name's JJ. 
you know, the, the family, when I, when I've interviewed and I have the opportunity to interview Joe Cap, he's very, very Chicano. I mean, uh-huh. you know, you study his library, how, how he thought, how he grew up, the contributions he made. He never forgot about being specifically a Chicano. I know that there's a lot of different terms now. Yeah. But, and he never forgot his roots, by the way. Never forgot his roots. Very involved in, in Lulac and, and different, uh, you know, ways to help the community. Um, and so it says a lot about also his heritage. And, and remember, for, for someone named Joe Garcia Cap, or, you know, he could easily go, he, he did go by Joe Cap, he could easily navigate life very differently than, than Nacho Ornelas, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he said that, and he's been aware of it, but always navigated his career as a Chicano. I mean, think about Sports Illustrated calling him, you know, the toughest Chicano in 1970. And he didn't shy away from the term. He identified as a Chicano. He identified as Mexican-American. And some people might say, well, we didn't have to, but, but he took great pride in his ethnic background. I've done some research on him and, and you know, how he, he was you know, he was brought up. And, and to me, that means a lot. It, it's not like someone that, that just has a Chicano name and, like, really has no connection. Right? Yeah. Like, Ted, like someone like Ted Williams, right? Like, Ted Williams admitted, like, I wanted her to run away from my Mexican side because, you know, it was like, it was going to be a rough career. It was going to be a rough life. He, he said that. Right? Like, to me, I'm not trying to name a field after Ted Williams just because he was half Chicano. Yeah. Right? I, I want to name a field, uh, an athletic field after one of the most successful alums of that community because he maintained his, his Mexican American identity, his Chicanismo, you know, and, and he fought for it and he struggled with it. And so to me, aside from all of his accomplishments in athletics at UC Berkeley and the NFL and the, and the, and the Canadian football league and, and as a Hollywood actor, by the way, also, oh, damn. um, to me, like, if kids ever learn about him, I think what the connection is 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 his his Mexican American heritage, you know, and and obviously his ties as an alum. Can you hear his voice? Are these any of these interviews like recorded or public or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot online as far as interviews with him. You know, he's still alive, got older, um, and he, he is suffering from uh, uh, Alzheimer's now. I, I just met with him a few weeks ago, and he's still sharp, man. He's still, like, you know, great human being. He's 83 years old now. Um, but he's just an unbelievable human being in, in my eyes and someone that I think we, you know, a lot of people talk about honoring after they've passed. Like, why not honor him, like, while he's still around? You know, he's, he's still alive. His family is very committed and, again, always talk about helping the community. You know, he just wrote a book about a year ago that got published. It got kind of didn't get a lot of publicity because of the pandemic. Everything was kind of put off on hold. But if you ever want to have his uh, his son come on your program and talk about the book, talk about his history, I could put you in touch. Yeah, I would um, love to. I think I think uh, Mr. Cap, Mr. Joe Garcia Cap, could also make a, a, a you know a short appearance. Back to like the naming of the athletic field. You know, come come August. You know, I'm gonna try to reach out to some other journalists to talk about it, to talk about the history, to do a write-up, to, you know, get more community support, and then also do a little bit more on social media specifically, not just on the field, but also to, like, do more outreach about his, his history and how important it is to learn about his ties to Salinas and the community. Yeah, dude. Well, like I'm telling you, a lot of our episodes now end with a little 15 to 20 minute history segment, so 
if you would like me or if you could help me out with doing that'd be pretty cool to do a little bio on him so get people start hearing about him and then knowing that who he was and that he's from here yeah no definitely definitely that's okay. All right. Well, anyway, Nacho, like I said, I could go on forever and ever, but we'll definitely talk again at some point. We'll get you back on here. Like I said, our, our show is a lot different than what it was those years ago when, when you invited us up to Stanford. And also, and I want to do this publicly here on the show. I want to thank you for that. That I, I literally cannot articulate what that not only meant for me, but what that did for me. Because we recorded the interview with Roberto Trujillo in this room at the Green Library in Stanford, and we were surrounded by books that were hundreds of years old. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, like I'm a nerd. Yeah. Like, that's just, you know, for me, that, that was ex- exciting. And I love books. Like, like God, ah, when I see a book, any kind of book get mistreated, I literally physically cringe. I'm just like, ah, that's knowledge. Don't mess with books. So to be surrounded by those books and to and to have a little part in sharing this information that Roberto and you were sharing with us again in a modern sense, you know, like this uh, podcasting is is like oral stories of of the past. And 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 like I said, I I, not that like I'm not trying to feel sorry for myself or anything, but I'm never going to go to Stanford as a student or anything. I, I would only go there as a visitor, just like I did there. But even even that I would rarely have the access that that you gave me not only talking, not only knowing you, but also, you know, talking to to Roberto, who is again, this is he, there should be books about him as well. <laughs> I don't even know if there are. Oh, my but, God. Yeah. But that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, and I walked away and then I also was it Orlando? I think also I, I met that day. I think his name was Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. yeah. Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. There yeah, you no, go. He's a Salinas native and he he's a graduate already. I haven't been in touch with him in, in a few months again because of the pandemic. But man, let me tell you, he's another just brilliant story that's come out of Salinas. Either North High or Alvarez. I forget where he went to school, but you know, he's a, he's a Stanford grad here pretty soon. if not already and a PhD student at the time when you met up. But no, man, I mean, I, that's always been my, my career in, in academia. It's always, it's always bothered me that, you know, the gates have always been closed to, to our communities. And so any chance I've always had to invite or to open doors and, and share a lot of this knowledge, you know, I, I've always welcomed people. So we got to have you back whenever you want. Come and do another story. But any chance I get to really, you know, invite people from the community to, to the campus to, you know, talk to different scholars or just, just to, to be there, you know. I mean, there's a, about seven, whatever it is, six years ago, we had, I, I held a big kind of ceremony for a lot of the braceros I conducted research with. About 12 braceros, I invited them out to a dinner there at, at the Stanford at Encino Hall. And I invited a, one of the braceros that I conducted an interview was Mr. Ramon Silva. If you know the Silva family, they're a big family. They're seven kids and I think five of them actually graduated from college. And uh, one of the daughters actually attended Stanford. But now his grandson, who's actually from Sacramento, but his father, Francisco Silva, grew up in Salinas, went to Alisari. He's going to be one of the first. I haven't fact-checked this, but I think he's going to be one of the first Mexican-Americans to play at Stanford on the Stanford basketball team. And so oh, he's wow. starting up um, here in... Uh, he, I think he started on campus already, but... 
you know, the basketball season is not until November, but, but that's someone, you know, you, you should have on your program also to talk about his ties to Salinas, his grandparents, his dad, who grew up in East Salinas. Now, they were farm workers. His dad worked in, in, in the field. He's now a very, very powerful attorney on Sacramento. But uh, look out for Isa Silva, man, because he's another proud Mexican-American. Takes a lot of pride in his, in his ancestry, his heritage. He doesn't doesn't have to always show it, but but he he, he supports it, you know. But my point is that any chance I've gotten, man, I, I open the gate, and, and and the same thing with the history, you know. Any chance I could get the history out of the of the libraries and share the world. Yeah, no, and and I really appreciate it. And you you have no idea how many times I'm like, this is a copy of the Divine Comedy from 1493. <laughs> like this is a year after <laughs> Columbus came. This is that's the real book. It's not a copy of it. And yeah, it, it it was amazing. And yeah, and and again, I'm eternally grateful for you offering that. And and I definitely would love to go back because the show is much better. My my interviewing skills are much better. Our equipment is much better. I, I, I feel I listen to that interview sometimes and I'm like, damn it, we did not do it. Pro-. I mean, we were still learning a lot back then. But uh, again, R- Roberto Trujillo doesn't have a he's not really a Salinas connection. But to know that people that look and talk like you can can reach these heights, it, it, it's a, it's immensely motivating and and again, I'm not trying to disparage white America or anything, but they have an endless amount of heroes to look up to to get motivated, and and I, and I use those too. Like I said, you know, I got FDR speeches up there uh, on my on my bookshelf. You know, I, I I American heroes are are also I see them as my heroes. I look up to them as well. But it, it is something is different when that hero or that person you look up to kind of look or sounds like you, you kind of see yourself like, okay, I could see how I could become that or be there now. And um, so, yeah, so you opening the door to, to su- such a prestigious academic institution like Stanford that uh, we really have no business <laughs> going in there and talking to it. It, it really, well, I, I would argue, I would argue that you have a lot of business. I mean, because there's just so many sources there that not only connect to, the Salinas, but the California history, the Salinas Valley, Monterey County, and uh, you know, just so many stories. Like, I mean, like Lori's, Lori's research and work, you know, like came out of her book, um, which is an important history of the Salinas Valley. All of a lot of her research was conducted there in the archives where I conduct my research, you know. And so, you know, the, the region has a, a, a big connection to, to Stanford, to Berkeley, also, by the way. Um, and so, we need to you know, expose those resources and share them. And, you know, little by little, you can, you can empower communities, right? Build relationships with school districts to, to teach this history, to teach the educators. You know, some of the educators actually don't even know the history. You know, they come from different areas and they just see a bunch of things out there, but no, don't really make a connection. Because again, they're teaching standards that tell them starting, you know, I don't know, 1776 with the Revolutionary War and then work your way like west and then by the time they get to california it's like the end of the school year in june you know yeah. or may now and uh and so sometimes it's really about like working with the school districts and saying like hey man you know there's a lot of history here um u.s history california history ethnic history that should be taught in the school districts and when you start to do things like that you know you empower uh generations of young people that really 
you know, they find school to be relevant. You know, when they hear the stories of their abuelitos and their abuelitas, like, you know, the history resonates as opposed to like all these different individuals that they can relate to, you know. They're great stories, but like what kind of connection can they make, right? And and when you're growing up, you're young, you could really be, you could really, uh, uh, you know, be empowered by stories like Garcia Cap. It's like, wait, his, his last name is also Garcia, you know, yeah. like mine. And he's Mexican American, and, and you know he went to Cal, and he played in the NFL, and he became an actor, and he became a successful business owner, you know. And, and his parents were not, you know, his dad struggled, you know, with alcoholism, and his mom was a waitress in Salinas, you know. It's not like like they were like accountants, you know, <laughs> yeah, or lawyers, you know, from Salinas. Like those stories, like they're very common, right? Like we know those kids have a lot of privileges, and they're gonna get to help. But like we want to hear the stories of the working class or, or or people who came out of poverty, right? That we can relate to, you know, for those of us that come from working class backgrounds. And so for me, you know, these kinds of stories are really important to share, but also to like make a connection, right? Like why do we still have an elementary school named after I think John C. Fremont, right? So someone told me that the, the elementary school is not named after John C. Fremont, but I'm like, okay, well, we just named I it went there and it pretty sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, why can't we name it after, you know, I don't know, another Chicana figure, you know, or someone out there that, like, the kids could be like, wow, you know, um, that individual really had a significant impact on my community in, in Salinas. Um, and so, yeah, like, that's, you, that's another... Do you know... Like, but. <laughs> No, I was gonna say um, when when you were you brought up a Chicana or whatever, I, I, and in my when I I that ringside seat to a revolution, I was introduced to a woman um, by the name of Carmelita Torres. I don't know if you know her. I don't. But I don't. She, she is basically known as the Mexican Rosa Parks because um, they wow. they used to when when people would go from Juarez to El Paso to work. They had to go through this bridge, and that's where they would get sprayed for lice and all this, and they would use Zyklon B, and they would have to do it every time. So if you went seven days a week, seven days a week, you would get sprayed by this poisoned, and your your clothes would be washed in gasoline, and they'd be washed in, like, people died because they would wash their clothes in gasoline, and then they'd light on fire, and all these people were stuck. So Carmelita Torres was like, no dice. Like, no, I'm, I have to do this every day. It's it essentially yeah. bullshit. And she's, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. They're like, yeah. well, you're not crossing. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, no, I'm crossing and I'm not doing it. And the you know, immigration officials started trying to push her back. And, and then this was the women. Other women went to defend her. Next thing you know, the, a, a riot starts. <laughs> and, and it's called the bathhouse riots. And and I learned about that in that book, and I was just like, "Wow, what? How am I? I'm yeah. 34 years old. I, I like history a little <laughs> bit more than the regular person. I like Mexican history also a little bit more than the regular person. Yet I, I have never once come across this name. And um, yeah. so yeah, yeah, so that's why I think it's super important, man. And, no, and I mean there's there's. There's a lot of those stories. You know, I don't know if you ever heard of the name Gloria, Gloria Bentoncourt, um, a union organizer in Watsonville, you know, with also with types of Salinas. But, you know, talk about like, you know, we always hear of like Dolores Huerta, right? Yeah. For, for, for good reason. You know, we should, we should know about her. But there's a lot of Chicanas, a lot of women, Mexican-American women, working class women who, you know, have, 
you know, been like our Rosa Parks is also, right? And Gloria Bancourt is amazing. You know, she just passed away last year, unfortunately. But I got to do some research and interview her before she passed away. And she, she led a labor movement out in Watsonville, you know, during the cannery strikes of uh, 1986 into 87, you know, when uh, they were fighting for um, better wages, protecting their um, their uh, benefits at the time. And, and man, if you read about Gloria Bancourt, you're like, wow, she was just a very, very impressive, very skilled labor organizer. You know, there should be a school named after her in, in Watsonville. Yeah. And yet a lot of people have never heard of, of Gloria Bancourt. You know, so there's a lot of these stories that we, we need to to tell, you know, to publish, to, to share on your, your platform and others. I'm all for it. <laughs> I'm all for it. I, I love it. And I'm actually, I've, I've been in talks with somebody else. They're they're local, but now they they work in a news station in the Bay Area. But they have plans of coming back, and they're like, "I want to do little short videos about Salinas Valley history that hasn't been spoken of." So we're kind of talking in the background, and uh, maybe I can use you as a resource at some point. And yeah, because I don't know, I love it. I love telling these stories. Because again, we we've all heard the Boston Tea Party story a million times, and I'm not saying it's bad to teach. Like, yeah, it's, it's American history; we should teach it. But man, there's so much more out there that that will give us a more complete picture. You know, you can never tell the whole story, but but yeah, I mean, if you tell a more honest story, I, I think you'll end up with more well-rounded adults in in the future, and that's only good for our country. So it, it sucks that you know it's education has has been usurped for political purposes now i don't know maybe it's been like that forever but but also it's cool that at this time we have things like this podcast you know we we are fully independent and i get to buy whatever books and do whatever research i want and um and yeah and, and we can tell the story from our side but um but nacho anyway i, I this is like the third or fourth time where i keep trying to say this is going to end and then I keep going on and on and I bring up somebody else. But, but again, we'll save that for another time. Uh, once again, th thank you for doing this. Thank you for, for being so outgoing, you know, when we first met, because that was all you inviting me. I, I don't think I ever pushed much or, or anything. So uh, without that, I, I would have never been able to experience that. And, and this show would honestly be different, you know, and, so yeah, so so thank you for that personally and and thank you for coming on today. And yeah, and if there's anything that I missed that you you want to bring up before we we sign off, go go ahead now. I'll, I'll give you this opportunity. No, thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for having me, but like, you know, let's, let's do it again soon. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this and like I said, we're the history thing, people are loving it. People had no idea that Monterey Jack Cheese was from Monterey. <laughs> and and that is mind blowing to me. So anyway, yeah, um, I, I yeah, we'll definitely do do something else very soon. We're we're gonna get back onto doing this every week. And if you're ever in town, it'd be nice to to get you in the studio and 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 be able to show off and be like, look, part of part of your inspiration got us here. Um, but not so. Uh, thanks again. And oh, and also, I did find that uh, grounds. Grounds for Dreaming, I'm going to put that on our bookshop.org book list. If you're not aware, uh, we, we have 
a book list on on bookshop.org. If you go bookshop.org slash salad bites, you can see each one of our shows has their own book list. And we're constantly putting things on there. And and I've added this grounds for dreaming. It is on back order right now, so you're probably gonna have to wait a bit. And but I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna find it somewhere. I'm I'm excited for that book. But anyway, Nacho, thanks again. And and yeah, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye.